Dementia Researcher podcast, talking careers, research, conference highlights, and so much more. Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, the show where we explore the diverse, often uncharted territories of dementia research. I'm Adam Smith, and today we have a truly special episode for you. As you will know, we venture into the world of research and often focus on the scientists and the breakthroughs and discoveries that shape our understanding of dementia. And this week, we've been looking at how to manage family life and a research career. But what about the unsung heroes, the pillars of support behind the scenes who play an integral role in the lives of dementia researchers? The husbands, wives, families, partners, lovers and significant others. Our episode today is titled The Hidden Support System. It's a glimpse into the lives of those who stand shoulder to shoulder with researchers, offering unwavering encouragement, love and understanding. We have the privilege of hearing from three remarkable individuals, all connected to dementia researchers, who generously shared their time and will give us some insights. Through their stories, we'll explore the intricacies of supporting someone on the front lines of dementia research, we'll delve into the challenges they face, the joys they celebrate, and the unbreakable bonds they forged in the face of demanding schedules and emotional highs and lows. So without further ado, let's meet our guests. It's my pleasure to introduce Andy Lashley, Michael O'Reilly, and Joao Moriera. Hello. Hello. Hi. So we'll do some proper introductions and allow you to tell us a little bit about yourselves. Andy, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, my name is Andrew Lashley. I'm an architect. Um, I run my practice um, from a, a little, my headquarters in our, at the end of our garden. Um, and I look after Tamron and our three kids. <laughs> well done. Thanks, Andy. Uh, Andrew. Do you, is it Andrew or Andy? Andrew, Andy, and a few others <laughs> as well. <laughs> that's, that's fine. Um, and uh, Michael, why don't you go next? Hi, uh, yeah. Um, my name's Michael. I'm a scenic artist uh, working for the Royal Opera House. Um, my wife is Zana Voise. Uh, we have one little girl called Ren, who's just a little bit older than two and a half now. Um, she keeps us quite busy. And uh, we're based out sort of kind of in the back end of nowhere, but kind of near Stansted Airport. Um, so we live, we live out there. Well on the way to Brighton. Does that make... Oh no, Stansted, Cambridge. Stansted, the other yeah, the other, yeah, Cambridge, yeah, yeah. <laughs> be nice to be nearer to the sea. But... What an amazing job. I, we're definitely going to have to come back and hear more about your work later. And uh, Joao? Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Joao Moreira. Um, I am a staff software engineer at a health insurance startup company here in the United States. Um, we're currently based in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, and no kids, because Isabella's is already a handful, so... Uh, yeah. So in this show, we're going to talk about what life is like for you and how you support the researcher in your life. Um, but before, we're going to have a little fun and test your knowledge with a quiz, which older listeners may recognise as a format stolen from a, a show called Mr. and Mrs. Uh, to explain, before we started recording, we asked research, the researchers in your lives um, to answer a few questions about themselves and their work and home life. And we're going to test all of your knowledge to see if you can answer the questions. Um, are, are you all confident? I wouldn't no, say no. confident. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
so before we get to the discussion, let's have the quiz. First question. We ask our researchers to describe what they do for a living, what their job is, in no more than uh, a couple of sentences. And um, I'm going to go to Andy. Andy, what do you think? We are going to add up the scores for this and, and, and tally them up and see if we have a winner. Andy, what do you think, Tamrin? Uh, how did she answer that question? Um, what does well, Tamrin do? I don't know like it to be. But what it is, is that she, I think she's spending more time trying to get funding for her people than she is doing the research that she really would like to do. Are you trying to say that Tamara's job is writing, job uh, writing grant applications? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I think you might be right, but that isn't how she answered the question. <laughs> All right. But she loves the lab, so it's hard. <laughs> Um, okay, Michael, why don't you have a go? Yeah, I would say it sounds like something similar. Um, no, I would say, yeah, Zanet is a, a doctor, she's a neurologist, but she's currently in a PhD um, on the topic of Huntington's disease, looking specifically at sleep, would be my answer, concise answer. Okay. And uh, I'm going to give you the answers once we go. I'm going to go to Javal first. So, Javal, what, what do you think, uh, Isabel? How did Isabel answer that question? Uh, Isabel is a postdoctoral uh, researcher. Um, she is doing research specifically in Alzheimer's disease right now. Um, I know she's doing dry lab, so most of what she does is in bioinformatics. And um, I can specifically say that I think her current project is studying people with resilience to the disease, so, which is pretty interesting. You weren't reading that. She didn't, she didn't prime <laughs> you and give you that answer before. <laughs> no, she did not. No, I, I, I just heard it enough times to kind of memorize, like burn it into my brain. So. <laughs> That's okay. Well, let's see what Isabel had to say. Isabel said she studies Alzheimer's disease from a genomics perspective, mainly transcriptio transcriptomics and epigenomics. Uh, currently, she is investigating resilience in Alzheimer's disease using bioinformatics and computational biology approaches with a particular interest on single cell and spatial transiomics. I think you get full marks for that, so that's one, one point for you, Michael. Let's see what, let's see what, uh, Zana, Zana. Z yeah? Zana, like Anna with a Z. Zana. Yeah. Let's see what Zana said. Uh, I'm a neurology doctor currently working as a clinical research fellow undertaking a PhD um, looking at sleep abnormalities and whether they worsen uh, the symptoms uh, and accelerate the disease biology of dementia. I'm looking specifically at Huntington's disease. I guess mine was the sort of thumbed down version oh, of that. This is sort of much more eloquent. For you as well. <laughs> Andy, I, do you... Clearly, I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you definitely get four marks for getting the most comical uh, and <laughs> honest answer. Uh, but uh, Tamron said she's a neuroscientist using post-mortem brain tissue to understand the mechanisms leading to neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, I knew that. You knew that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay, I think that's full marks all round. Three, three points each. Next question. We're gonna have. Um, we're just gonna do a few questions before we get into the main crux of the show. Uh, how many hours a week uh, do they work? Uh, Andy, how many hours a week does Tamron work? Um, that's easily up in the 70s, I would imagine. 
um, she even when she's not at work she's working <laughs> so it's yeah it's that sort of number I would imagine 70s well she said it's hard to put a number on it it varies week by week but on average she thinks it's 45 no so still lying. more than she no, she's, she's lying, lying. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, uh, anybody who's listened to the podcast, if you listen to the show that came out on Monday or the interview we've had with Tamron this week, I'm sure she did actually put it at more like 60-something. Uh, <laughs> but there you go. Um, what about you, Michael? Um, I would... Well, I, I don't know what it would be in hours, but um, Zana works four days a week, and the other day she's looking after our little girl. Um, and she works, you know, full full days and obviously you know it's kind of hard to to switch off sometimes we all take work home with us um but she's quite good at it but yeah i would say she's very hard working and works probably more than four days but you know in reality it's meant to be four it, days it's it's not a competition well it is a competition but no you're exactly right 100 percent. four days a week 32 <laughs> hours nursery doesn't allow for more i i think that's uh, perfect and joao um how yeah, many hours I think a week does Isabel work? It typically fluctuates between 40 and 50, I would say. More recently, it's thankfully leaning more towards the 40. So I'm going to be like 45, is my guess. Uh, hit the nail on the head. Uh, I think it's around 40 hours a week. It depends on the week, but some weeks it's definitely more than that. But I'm trying to get a better work-life balance. Well done. I think we're, we're nailing, you're nailing this quiz. You're all doing really well. We have one more question uh, before we get to the main point of the podcast. Uh, and just actually, before we move on from hours per week, do you, as much as though the hours people actually, you know, people, the hours they actually work, does the amount of time they work cause any problems? Do you think it's too much, not enough? I mean, how does that compare to your to yourselves anybody um, when when she's working from home we're at the other end of a desk to each other or at the dining table so we probably work very similar hours sometimes even it's sort of like you know i'm in doing things and she's out working so it is very but she she she's always doing something um to prepare for something else <laughs> it seems <laughs> So, yeah, you can understand that, particularly in the evenings and things like that. Yeah. I don't know about Joao. I can, I, for anybody who's not watching this as the video podcast, I can see a chair that look, looks next to you that looks yes. like maybe you have the similar, you have a similar yeah. setup to um, Andy. That's right next to me for sure. Yeah, yeah that's a bit close for me though. She's at least four <laughs> meters away. <laughs> Small apartment here in Boston, so that's all we get. <laughs> Okay, let's have the uh, third question, and this is a little bit more of a fun one, but relevant when you're considering the balance of domestic uh, responsibilities, which was, who's the best cook? Um, and Andy, who's the best cook in your house? You're looking at him. <laughs> Without do a think, doubt. Do you think... I, I'm also the most frustrating because she hates my mise en place of having everything all laid out ready for cooking. <laughs> Well, you'll be pleased to know um, Tamarin agreed with you. What about you, Michael? Uh, I think Zana will have probably put me down. Oh, she's a brilliant cook, but I think she would have put me. You're absolutely right. She did. <laughs> and uh, Joao, 
Yeah, I same thing. I'm pretty sure Isabel put me down as well. But we sort of, I, I, my personal opinion is that we're pretty much on equal foot footing. Uh, we we do very well at cooking, both of us. Interesting. So Isabel, I'd, I'd give a quite a long answer to this question. Oh no. <laughs> um, <laughs> Isabel said both of us. He will say that it's the that it's me. Meaning you, you'd say that it was her, but she disagrees. That's because um, uh, because she's cooked for a long time and you used to hate cooking, uh, but yeah. now she thinks you're both equally as good. The, the initial go. agreement for some context in our relationship was that uh, Isabel was going to be the one cooking and I would do the dishes all the time. This was many, many years ago. Um, it obviously doesn't work that way anymore, but the reasoning is cooking just takes a long time, which... Me being a bit of a impatient person, <laughs> I prefer doing the dishes in 15 minutes and be done with it. So, Well, I think well, the first three questions in this quiz have definitely proven that you're all well-placed and you all know the researcher in your life particularly well. We're going to come back to the quiz later, but let's, um, let's pause there and we'll pick up on the, the questions of, that we want to get to on this podcast. Okay, well, we're back. And I thought what we might actually start with uh, at this point is just a little bit uh, about empathy and understanding. Um, uh, as we've discovered, understanding the intricacies of d dementia research may not be easy. How, how have you cultivated empathy and understanding for your partner's work? As you've all just explained, you certainly know what they, they do. Um, but how have you cultivated an understanding of their work and how, how do you navigate conversations about it. I mean, assuming you talk about their work at, at home. Um, Michael, why don't you go first? Uh, yeah, I guess, um, I, mean, I suppose we, you know, we'll ask about each other day and what we've done um, at the end of the day and stuff. Um, I suppose sort of more specifically, uh, I've been a guinea pig for Xana a couple of times, um, specifically having, you know, all the sort of electrodes put on my head when she's been preparing to do sleep studies and she's needed something, somebody to practice on. Um, so, yeah, sort of having various little sort of gluey things stuck into my head, having to sort of sit around for a long time. Um, and I'm trying to think of anything else. I mean, we have, you know, various members of family who have, who have got uh, dementia and so I suppose that adds another element of, you know, we'll... Uh, how we both sort of navigate the subject on a kind of personal level as well, not just a sort of work level, seeing how it kind of impacts, yeah, family, but also seeing it in a work context as well, I think is quite a good balance. And you, you mentioned, obviously, we, we've talked that Zana is a neurologist and is doing their PhD right now. It's a normal day job in dementia and Huntington's prior to kind of getting involved in research. No, it was so she was working as a doctor, uh, training in neurology, uh, full time medicine, and um, I think she's sort of always had an interest in in kind of that area. But then, kind of, it, I guess, sort of, you know, how things fall into place. Really, um, she kind of found that sort of niche. And, yeah, we've talked uh, on the show before about. Um, trying to encourage more clinical researchers to think about a research career and it's it's always a bit of a challenge because I think everybody's so busy in their clinical day job to have, have things changed 
at all? I mean, is this now slightly less hours? Is it is it easier now that they're working in? I guess it's just quite it's quite a different. I mean, I think and I think she would love to stay in research. I think she she's fully like I think the way she works, she's definitely built to be a researcher. Uh, as you know, she's built to be a doctor as well for sure. But um, I think she really enjoys it. And like we were sort of talking before about the work life balance, like we both work four days a week now which is really balanced and you know like she said that I was the better cook but we'll just take it in turns and there's just much more of like a I guess a kind of work and outside of work balance um whereas you know obviously like when you're working in medicine it's, it's very different and obviously you, you accommodate for that but it's a very different lifestyle in terms especially when you've got kids and stuff I suppose that is there a difference do you think between coming home having a full clinical day when you've had that challenge of dealing with patients as opposed to coming home and thinking oh god I've got to write a paper or I'm supposed to be writing another chapter on my PhD and things does it uh, uh, do you find yourself having more to offer if you like in terms of helping when it's something academic as opposed to clinical uh yeah I guess because because to some extent I can sort of you know kind of grasp academia but when it comes to kind of you know medicine it's just a totally different world to me like you know um and obviously I'd, I'd still just sort of I think at the end of the day it's nice to just have your other partner hear about what you've done or some of the things that you found like challenging or, or whatever yeah Andy um you have very different jobs how, how have you kind of cultivated that understanding and empathy I'm a um, technical support Dropbox at the end of the day. <laughs> um, we have, a, how should I say, um, Tamron has an incredible work ethic to start with. Um, if something needs doing, get it done. End of story. I am a designer, so I like to ponder. <laughs> but we both have uh, uh, an, an interest in in the sort of technical aspects of anything, you know, I'm, so I, I'm very interested in what she's doing, even though I understand say 40% of what she's saying to me, but our, our system seems to be that when she started needing a lift home from the train station at the end of a day, it was immediate download on the way home, get home, deal with whatever needs to be dealing with here and sorting, you know, family situations out and this sort of thing. And then we probably have, in the evening, another discussion and download about what she's thinking about doing, ideas, approaches to things. And whatever my two cents might be, I'll never know if it gets used or not. <laughs> but uh, but for me, it's, you know, it, it, I'm very interested in what she's doing. And, and, and you know, I've been around from the very beginning because Cameron is a scientific researcher rather than going through any clinical doctoral sort of thing. So she actually you know, came through a technical side. So, and, and because I'm interested in how things work and that, how things go together, I find it sort of, you know, for me, it's sort of like a break from my architectural thinking to discuss her, you know, thinking about neurology and brains and dimension, that sort of thing. So I, I quite enjoy it, actually. <laughs> this is probably a bit of an unfair question, actually, because, of course, this show is all we're making this show all about them and their work of course because that's it's the dementia researcher podcast but do you get do you get that back 
I mean, you know, when you're, we're talking about how, you know, this download and the empathy for what they do, um, there's a lot of talk, particularly on this podcast and on our website, about how academia is hard. And I often, I've held other jobs before and I kind of go, well, yeah, but so are other jobs. Uh, you know, it, it, do, do you get that same empathy back for the kind of work you do? Um, when, when, if I, <laughs> if I talk to her about my work, <laughs> there's a definite glazing over. But if she's sat in the room when I'm speaking with clients, she's at the other end going. <laughs> um, because she can't believe, you know, my job is to get people to actually open up to me and let me in their lives so that I can actually design something that works for them. Hmm. By result of that, we might have a husband and wife on a team's call having a full meltdown argument. And she's at the side there thinking, what is going on there? Are they disagree about, about yeah. the new house design. Exactly, because it, there's nothing more sensitive than whether a toilet goes here or here. <laughs> so, so it does, you know, she does have, she over the, you know, since, particularly since COVID, when we've been working quite a lot in the same space, um, she's had a much more interesting understanding of what my work is. But if I go, back home and tell her I've had a problem with getting bricks to hit on a lintel. <laughs> the, the brain is much more interesting. <laughs> how about you, Joe? How, how have you cultivated empathy and understanding for Isabel's work? And how, and how do you talk about it? The right answer is probably slowly over time. Um, Isabel has been sort of on this academia career path for quite a long time now. She's done two bachelor's degrees, one master's and one PhD, and she's now continuing the, the postdoc. Um, so the expectations were set at the beginning of our relationships of like what she wants to do. Um, and obviously we've all, I think one of the bigger strengths of, in our relationship is communication. We just talk a lot. Uh, like even we're, if we're just at home, even with the TV on, we'll just chat sometimes and just not pay attention to whatever is going on. Um, and yeah, obviously with that, 40% of what she talks about will be her work, maybe more sometimes depending on the weeks. So um, I'm more than happy to hear about what she, makes her excited about life and makes her excited about work. I think like, it's like you say, I don't know, being kind of cheesy, but seeing that, you know, glimpse of like light in her eye when she's talking about stuff that makes her excited is, is always good to me. Yeah, you can, uh, yeah, I, I can absolutely see that. Do you, did, were they, did everybody, did you understand what you were getting into? I mean, did you know about the instability of academic careers and the, the challenges that came with research before, before, I, I don't know, of course, I'm, I'm guessing, depending on when your relationship started, there would have already been researchers before you met or might that career's developed while you've been together. But did you understand the challenges around that? I don't know, Michael, I guess it's a bit different. Yeah, Cause, yeah. Because career in would have started when, you know, university. Yeah, that's right. And when I met her, she was, uh, she was, she was doctor. She was working, you know, in the NHS full time. So, um, and then, you know, I think she, she actually started research probably just after, you know, a little bit after we got married. And so it was interesting to kind of, yeah, just to really, I was just really excited for her. Like it was really cool to see her excited about, and also to kind of take that plunge and take a, take time out from, 
from something that you've been doing for so long. Um, and yeah, it's really brave just to sort of, you know, try learn. I think it's interesting to see how she's, le- you know, having to learn lots of, lots of new things with quite little guidance in some ways. Um, so that's really cool. So this is probably, I don't know if we've already covered some of this, but the, have there been moments when you found it challenging to comprehend the complexities of their research? Um, I mean, Andy, you already mentioned that you got about, four, I think it, when you, if you can claim you're getting 40% of what they're talking about, then I think you're, you're already doing incredibly well. What, what, what percentage, Joao, what, what percentage of Isabel's work do you think you would say? Andy said 40. It's not a competition. Yeah, it's hard to measure it. Like there is, I have the advantage of also working, with, like I'm also a programmer and Isabel is doing like programming effectively. Um, so that side of things, like I, I can understand quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I'd probably be close to 40% as well, 40, 50% of like just understanding everything that she's telling me at any point in time. Yeah. Do you think, do you think it matters? Do you really need to fully understand the detail of what they do? Instead, is this just about being being there to answer questions? Because then, let's face it, they're not going to come to you, I expect, with a detailed question uh, about their work because they know you're not going to be able to answer that. Except maybe you, Joao, with some coding. <laughs> some coding yeah. It's happened before, for sure. <laughs> but I guess they're not going to come to you and talk about powering studies or... or what this means on a particular MRI they're reading that's being done on somebody with a sleep problem, are they? Um, so I guess it does it really matter that you don't fully understand, but instead you just have a uh, enough that they can talk about this. I think the you know the the, the scientific jargon around dementia and the, the you know the various camps that dementia lives in for people running down certain avenues of research and this sort of thing. You know, I understand the conceptual nature of research and, and, and the fact that, you know, I will never understand the particular areas of the brain that do certain things in the same way that she does, because, you know, she plays with it every day, effectively. <laughs> so, um, but from my point of view, if we're having a discussion on any subject, I know I can I can manage sort of what I would call my side of the discussion to respond to because sometimes I might tell her well have you tried this and then she'll oh yeah well I've done this and I've done that and the next and and we go down an avenue but my issue is is that two days later if she comes back and starts that conversation and I say well let's just head back to the beginning first and bring me back up to speed. Well, I was just thinking about this, actually, because I guess one of the what it's not just about the research that they're going to talk about, but instead it's the environment, it's the career, it's the structures. And as you mentioned at the start, the kind of grant applications mm-hmm. and the complexities of working in an academic institution where they're all different and how you get a promotion or it because it's not the same as working in a company, is it? it it's very different. I, I find science does not qualify people. And then encourage them alone. It's like I've, you know, I've she's Tamron has had a few of these cases where people have become qualified, and then unless they get their funding, you know, they have nowhere to go from that point of view. And so I think science is is very difficult, you know, when when you imagine. I mean, Tamron has had one or two occasions in her career where, you know, 
a grant may be finishing and there's no new grant on the horizon. You know, and luckily she's had that sort of reputation where she's had the support to bridge between two potential grants, that sort of thing. But science is, is quite cruel from that point of view because you're bringing people up. It's not so much about the expectation of having a career in science, which is a difficult thing, I think, but it's the fact that you bring people to a point where they are high-level scientific thinkers, but they're not trained to understand the fact that they have to find their own funding at a point and how to do that. It's sort of like, you got here now, see you. I think it's when you talk to um, anybody outside of academia and you talk to them about what the career paths are like and how how they're all these short-term contracts of a, a year or two and how you have to apply for your own funding and you might not get another job or you might have to move. Everybody's kind of often surprised, I think, that it's that it's not straightforward, like where there's a, an obvious path where you start out with a PhD and then if you tick this box, this box, this box, you'll be a professor in six years. I mean, in the NHS, I guess, there is kind of that there for consultants, uh, although not necessarily because you might not have a post at the end. But then you, when you flip that into research, it, it's entirely different. Sorry, I always ask her, you know, what's, what is the potential number of great scientists and discoveries that have been lost to science because they did not get that last round of funding? Yeah. yeah. Michael, you were going to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to add to that. I think it's really interesting that, because um, for, for mine and Zana's relationship, um, Zana's probably come from that background of, you know, it's very structured, tick, 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 career path. And then jumping into funding, it's this kind of different world. Um, but for me, kind of coming from a sort of art, fine art, freelance background, where you do, you not, you haven't got consistent stuff going on all the time. Like it was like that side of it. I was like, yeah, I totally get that. It's so, totally self-directed in some ways. You got to knock on, you know, you got to sort of, you know, push for things and knock on doors and try various avenues. And um, so, even though our careers are completely sort of worlds apart, that side I could sort of, I guess, you know, offer. I could be more sympathetic and understanding, I guess, and offer more. Yeah, I guess support. you're gonna have a yeah. A better understanding than most about that kind of freelance because it is a bit like a free I mean it's not but it, it, it is a bit mm. like a freelancer isn't it you haven't got that structure and if you're in the NHS there aren't that many actual research funders that are going to fund your career they might fund your research but you know there's only a few there yeah um, yeah I remember you know, putting in applications for funding and stuff so yeah Actually, that brings us really nicely into this next section, which I thought we'd talk a little bit about the emotional side, because we've, you know, you're all there during these kind of highs and lows. Um, I guess uh, Joao and Andrew, particularly, you're going to have gone through this because there's going to be grant applications you've they've written during that time, job applications, promotions they've gone for. Um, can you describe how you feel when your partner? gets those setbacks or challenges in their research? I mean, how does that affect you and, and how do you then try to support them? Joao, why don't you go first? It, it's a great question. Um, I think I had the advantage that Isabel by nature is very emotional. Like her life generally is very up and down. Um, so I have gained the skills to, to you know, deal with that uh, quite a bit. Um, so when she's feeling a bit down and low, um, I will do whatever I can to support her. Like, even if it's just small things like, you know, get her favorite snack or 
whatever it might be, just to you know compensate for a, for a little bit. But I will. Um, Isabel pre prefers to have as much space as possible to sort of digest, you know, the the bad things that have happened. That's the way she kind of functions, and I have learned that over time. So, but overall, but she does sorry. come home and t talk about it, though. She'll come home, and yeah. so it's not something that won't even get a grant. Uh, say a grant rejection, she'll come home. And oh, say I will know. Grant. Yeah, I will definitely know about it. Um, we will definitely like talk uh, about it. I will. She will be a bit more emotional and be like try to blame ourselves a lot of the time for this but i try to put things into perspective i know like sometimes when you're emotional uh putting things into perspective isn't exactly what you're looking for a lot of the time you just want somebody to hear what you have to say so i kind of i tend to be that person to hear what she has to say like just let her dump whatever she has on me um and then just give her space to kind of recover from that that that's usually the winning strategy. If I have a solution to offer for her, I will give her advice, obviously. But it's always a bit sensitive, I think, because um, you never know when people are kind of accepting of advice or not, depending on their emotions. Uh, what about you, uh, Andy? Um, I I alluded to it previously as well, but the. There are definite ups and downs from that point of view. But if I could explain like a, 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 when things don't work, my business is very much, I have to go and present myself to clients and I give them a fee proposal. They come back and tell me yes or no, and we go ahead. Uh, emotionally, I don't get tagged into it. I pro that probably happens to me during the job. I get really locked into the client and their ideas and needs. Tamrin has, you know, Earlier on in her career, she definitely had a situation where every grant meant something. It meant a future, and uh, the disappointments were really tough. And, you know, and and you know, but we we always sort of talked through them. We had a particular moment in our lives um, back in when they had the financial crash in two thousand and eight. My business tanked. I mean, it just dried up literally over about two or three weeks. All my clients shut down. I had nothing. And I just actually built the first half of this office because I was planning on growth. And um, but we sat down in that August together, talked through everything and said, OK, she's still good. Her job is secure. She's safe with you know, her circumstance. We'll be OK. And then in February, um, her her mentor, her boss and her mentor said that he would be retiring and therefore her grant would not get reduced, re renewed. And suddenly our lives were, you know, we had no idea what was going to happen next. You know, she, she had, you know, that she, if she was going to get another grant, it would have been submitted within weeks of that. And it was just impossible to do. So she was definitely going to skip a grant round. And we had, you know, a lot of people came up, it would work to offer her support, which was, which was good. Um, but we did have a period of about six or eight months where we were wondering you know, were we still going to be in here <laughs> in next week sort of thing? So it, it, there's the, there's not the disappointment of the grant, which could be in a moment or two or three weeks. It's actually a significant, how does it affect your life? And that just happened where we both coincided with a down um, and it hit pretty hard. But since then we have managed to, you know, have a good, you know, sort of more even sort of keel. And since that moment, her career has been on a essentially upward trajectory. 
So she's always been, I mean, I think the situation now is she's probably less bothered about how grants affect her and more how they affect the people that work for her, having gone through that experience. And I, and I guess as time comes on, it, the, the grant application is disappointing, but not it's not the difference yeah. between yeah. between you know having a roof over your head and, and not, exactly. uh, uh, which I, I can see that. But now she does worry about those people that she's trying to get grants for, making sure they have a roof over their head next year. <laughs> and, and again, I suppose that's the same question. So do you know about that, Andy? I mean, is this yeah. a, they'll come home and say, oh, this grant was, was rejected today and yeah. you'll have a conversation. We'll talk in a lot of detail about what grants she's going for, what they mean. Um, and she's, she's very much, you know, she's a, she's a very good and caring leader of people, but I don't think she got into this position really fully acknowledging the fact that she would now be, you know, trying to maintain other people's livelihoods. Yeah. To that extent. And again, you know, well, not many businesses, because I mean, for architects, we don't, we, you know, when I got trained, we didn't get trained to run businesses. We got trained to design things. Yeah. The same thing is happening um, in, in her environment. They, they don't get trained to manage people and you're either good at it or you're not. But if there was training, it would probably make things a lot more easier to, to, to resolve. Well, it sounds like you're all, you've all worked out strategies to, to how to provide that support. Um, there is, of course, the flip side to that, which is as much as there are grant rejections, there are also grant, there are, there are lots of things that come back that are positive. I mean, papers published, grants accepted, just a good day in the lab where the results came back that, that you were looking for, right? Or you managed to recruit some patients into your study today when it's been particularly difficult. Um, do they share, how do you share in that success with them, Michael? I'll come to you. I suppose one kind of thing that comes to mind is uh, probably the first like major kind of um, grant for funding over a couple of years that, that Zana got was sort of, she was applying for it during lockdown and the kind of very early stages of COVID. Um, <clears throat> she was in the early stages of pregnancy as well. Um, and I had got, like, when we then, you know, when nobody knew anything about it, like, I got COVID, and I was just, like, super, super unwell, like, within the first week that everything shut down. Zana was, like, trying to work, you know, do these applications. And I was like, I really don't want to bother you, but could you get me, like, a drink or something? Yeah, I'm bad here um you know but I'd leave her to it obviously I'm not gonna ask her to do a lot of stuff but um and I remember uh I can't remember if it was a phone call or an email or I just heard a little noise downstairs and then she kind of kept I was kind of laid out in bed came scuttling upstairs you know super stoked that she got you know, she got this big grant she just got the news for it and I was just like I'm so happy for you but I can't like properly express how happy I am for you because I'm so unwell. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, so yeah, just really, you know, it's always great. And I guess it's always one of those things as well. It's like, you know, even if it is a rejection, it's like, right, you know, let's, what, what can we learn from this? Like, what can you learn from this? Like, we'll just sort of, you know, talk about it and stuff. And, and just the more you do them, I guess, you know, the more you learn about them, the more you get or don't get, you more, you kind of figure out how to respond to, positive and negative feedback and stuff and she's literally just put another a, a granting proposal um i think she we we're on the phone i was driving home just before this and she'd 
uh, she's like, I've so I've just submitted that now, and we we kind of gone through the the storm of like having to sort that all out with various people and stuff. So yeah, you're there with them, I think. Like, and obviously it's there. Yeah, I I can see empathy just emanating from all of you to to enjoy those highs and lows. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually brings me to a you bring me to a good question there, Michael, about uh, practically involve you. I mean. Obviously, we, we'll talk a little bit later about home life and um, practical things you do at home. But but do they practically involve you in their work? I mean, are you are you all proofreading stuff? Are you looking at their charts? Are you reading grant applications? Are you proofreading papers? Anybody? That, that, that's where I'm getting left behind now because um, I used to help do all of her diagrams and all this sort of thing, and now she's got into doing them is sort of she's showing me i'm like but that's my thing <laughs> Jamal, obviously you've been checking her checking isabel's code oh but... no i i don't actively check her code but i do um i have done quite a bit of proofreading as well like as you know like english english is not our first language is um we're both portuguese so uh, she keeps repeating that my English skills are better than her, so she always tends to kind of lean on me when she has like a, I don't know, some letter that she wants to write or an email or whatever. Um, she, she will try to run run it through me first. But yeah, on the code side, um, I don't think it's like, I do tend to help her with some issues that she may have, but I think the biggest contribution I've given to her is like what to expect when going into coding, because like, you need to be in a specific frame of mind when you're programming, right? Um, and you need to expect your brain to work in uh, different ways. Like I have days that I'm programming and nothing good comes out. It's kind of like any creative job, right? Um, and in other days, and not helping her understand that, you know, that's what's going to happen, I think was probably the biggest practical contribution I've given to her job. And do you want it to them as well? I mean, given their unique set of skills, they're all good at writing grant applications, they've written papers, they understand detail. I mean, do you have, do you go to them with your work problems as well? Are they helpful? Yeah, I will definitely lean on her for anything that needs any sort of attention to detail. Because to be honest, I am terrible at attention to detail. So um, Isabel has that skill, which I definitely do appreciate. So if I have like a very important formal text uh, that I need or even sometimes just finding an issue potentially with code, I will sometimes lean on her, for sure. Uh, and Michael and Andy, I guess it's a little bit different artistically, but uh, Andy, I guess uh, um, being a PI in a study comes with a lot of good financial management skills these days, maybe useful for managing the accounts. And uh, Michael, you're, I, you're going to be designing the first book cover, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> Cameron's always been um, the the dealing with the finances because she has that logic thing. Um, uh, we, we like, for instance, for you know, for what I do, I ask her. You know, we talk about what I'm doing in terms of if I'm going to make a fee proposal or if I'm going to go after a, a a different work type or something. What the implications are for us, but I never ask her to do anything writing wise in normal English because she doesn't do normal English. <laughs> she does science English. <laughs> you won't get a short, concise, nice review back. <laughs> so I tend to have to soften the language if she writes anything for me. <laughs> I think that's enough for now. Let's go back to our quiz. 
Okay, we're back after the interlude with our fourth question for the quiz. And uh, I'm going to go to Michael first this time. Michael, we asked uh, the researcher in your life how many publications they had. Um, how many did... Uh, how many do you think? Oh, I'm just going to bottle this one. I have no idea. I would be guessing, and I'm going to be honest about that. Lots. I feel like she's done lots of publications. She's always put publications out. I can't even put a number on it. That's how bad my answer's going to be for this. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think you've... Do you know what? You've gotten off really luckily here because um, <laughs> there's no answer to that question. <laughs> oh, brilliant. She's, I probably distracted her at that point in time in the room with something. <laughs> you That's... got lucky there. There's no yeah. answer to that question. Uh, Joao, how about oh. you? I mean, Isabel's uh, an, uh, an earlier career stage, I guess, and, and publications are really important. It's, you're still keeping count at that point. What did, uh, what did Isabel say? Um, I, I'm going to say publications as a first author because otherwise I, I have lost count for everything else. Okay, uh, good. But, but I'm going to say like caveat. four, five? Oh, no. Higher. Six. 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 <laughs> yes. <laughs> You, you can, were you close can enough. Six is no, no. You can edit out. Six. I'd like to get the answer right the first time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Six <laughs> in peer-reviewed journals. And um, Andrew. This is, this is no. This is no the, the worst case scenario. The end of my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we, we can qualify this. So Tamron's a, a tenured professor at UCL. Has been around. Uh, has been had a an extensive research career. So this isn't. I, I guess you do. Do you still even celebrate a new first author paper being published? Yes, but I couldn't put. I couldn't tell you the number. <laughs> okay. um, she is. She is. When I when I say she's high, I think she could be at a hundred or just short of that. But she could be in the hundreds for published papers. <laughs> Okay, well, Tamron said it's 188. Yeah. <laughs> we just so, we talked about it recently, but I just couldn't remember if it was over 200. So. It's just got to be so many, you just don't celebrate the success anymore. It sounds like you owe, um, owe some glasses of champagne. Um, well, we have two bottles in the fridge waiting, so we're all right. <laughs> okay, we'll move on to the fifth question. We asked them what job they'd do if they weren't a dementia researcher. Um, Joao, why don't you go first? What what did what did the dementia researcher in your life say to that question? Isabel, she's talked about doing so many things. Like she's talked about doing uh, everything from wedding planning, from interior designing, from photography. Uh, she she is a very ambitious person, which I do admire. So it's hard to put a single option out. Well, I'm I'm going to give you a I'm going to give you an out here. Pick one of the things you've just said and you'll get it right. Oh, good. I'm getting close. Um, That's a clue. Um, it, interior designing, maybe? Might be the top it, one. It, it was photographer or, ah. des or designer. So <laughs> you were... <laughs> you were close. You, uh, what you about can you, see Michael? The, you can see the cameras behind, behind me. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean... Yeah, Zana's very hardworking. She's a very dedicated uh, person. So I feel like, I don't know, something... I think she likes, she likes, you know, she likes to do something fun. I feel like she might have said, 
either something with animals or the Glido Lido, her business she's got an idea for, which I don't know is I don't know is the right thing to say on air. I had a conversation with her about this earlier, and I was like, dude, you don't want to like put that out there because someone might steal it. So, <laughs> well, you've got she's that right. That, yeah, running the Glido, running the Glido Lido. Oh, Michael yeah. know what it means, <laughs> but yeah. you don't have to. You don't have to explain if if this is oh. giving away a business idea. Well, the but I'm assuming in, Lido. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it involves the Lido. I think she'd like you know she'd like to run a business that's just fun orientated and minimal stress. I imagine, so. which is entirely fair. And Andy, so give me a hint. Did Tamarin say another research thing, or completely away from research? God. No, a very serious I, position. I'm I'm lost. <laughs> there, there's, um, I, there's... I would think that she might want to do research into um, our youngest daughter's issues, um, which is a chromosome deletions, uh, and I I think that would be what she probably would want to look into more than anything else if she came away from dementia. <laughs> You're very close. Um, so she would like to be a special educational needs lawyer. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think half a point for for that. There you go. I live with that. I <laughs> that one. with that one as well. <laughs> so. I, I I have to admit I haven't been keeping score, but I, I feel like everybody gets full marks. You were all close enough. <laughs> I, I think Andy was definitely out on the publications one, but you oh, yeah. all knew the jobs. You were close on careers. I think you've all done it remarkably well. Um, so let's go back to the last questions on this podcast. So we're almost out of time now, but before we finish, I want to have a final discussion just about the practicalities and dealing with the day-to-day -day domesticity. Is domesticity a word? I, I feel like it is. No? Maybe <laughs> not. Mike, Michael, I'm going to come to you first. How do you kind of manage home life? So you you both work um, pretty much full time. You've got a toddler you mentioned before, and then you've got this this partner working in dementia research. How how does the day to day work for you at home? Um, I think we just try to split things like fifty fifty, and. You know, if one person's doing one thing, the other person can do something else. So, you know, we'll make sure we'll try to make sure that, you know, we give each other time to ourselves, um, you know, and especially with with childcare, like we try to, you know, make sure we're not, you know, making it so that one person's doing feeling like they're doing too much or getting run down from that or whatever. But on a kind of sort of bigger note, rather than just sort of the kind of everyday things, um, I suppose I've kind of helped out with a couple of sort of fun things like I had to because uh, Ren was very little when Zana needed to go to Athens for a conference so we obviously we all went but then I just have this yeah very vivid memory of traipsing around Athens in you know trying to get out of the heat with this little baby in a bush chair trying to get her up you know get her to sleep and stuff and well uh well Zana could do a conference and then she'd come and meet us like and time off and stuff um and then one of the other good ones that springs to mind is we'd gone on a holiday to Nice. Well, it was a holiday for me because Anna was presenting a poster. Um, but And I was like having a nice lie-in. It was nice. Get a phone call. Woken up. Uh, Zana's like, the workmen have ripped my poster. 
I don't know what to do. Like, it's meant to be presented in my world really soon. And she was obviously, I, <laughs> I was just, she was like emotionally, you know, that was difficult, obviously. And I was, but equally, I was like, I've just woken up, I don't know what to do. So I sprinted across town to find out where she was. Uh, and then we both went and hunted out a printer's in Nice, you know, this was early in the morning, so it's before it had opened, waited outside till it had opened, got a new poster printed for her, and then she was able to go back. So that was another fun one. And then she also... That's very cool. Yeah, it was good fun. Um, she also does sleep studies, so she uh, she's finished them now, but she did a phase of doing sleep studies for participants, um, which meant her being out in the evenings uh, over the course of a couple of months for you know, a couple of days. So I would be looking after Ren and, you know, we'd be doing bedtime together and stuff, which is another way as well. And is there flexibility in there? I mean, do you kind of, I mean, I'm assuming that there's some advance notice and there's this understanding that, you know, because, I mean, you've just given two examples there where you've arranged holidays around conference attendance, <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah. which definitely isn't the, the norm. And then yeah. having to swap things around, I guess it's easier for you you because you uh, I don't know is it easy for you because um, I, I mean, mean you've got a set set design I, I'm imagining at some I point see. you do actually have to go to the Royal Opera House and do stuff yeah. there so we we produce and we make the the designs that the designer has made um, so we'll paint you know we'll fabricate them paint them you know, make them out of metalwork carpentry etc so we're the makers of the people with the concept um, so it's you do physically. It's not something you can do set at a computer at home. No, no. We're in a workshop, um, uh, you know, giant workshop, working on the floor. You know, firing out paint and carving giant trees and things like that. Um, but yeah, in terms of flexibility, like it definitely works the other way as well. Like there are times when we've got you know things have either worked out that a build has come through to us late, so the deadline. It's fast approaching, um, or you know, we have less time on it than we would have expected. Which you know, and Zana has been really great at accommodating either having to look after Ren on a you know, on a day off where she was meant to be off or at work or something. Or you know, we definitely. Yeah. I'm like, look, we need you know, you need an we need an extra pair of hands in work. Is there any chance you know I can work this day? You know, we. It's definitely flexible that way around as well. And yeah, I do have to go up to Covent Garden sometimes to do repairs on stage which is a longer day for me because we don't we live a bit further out so you know she, it's expected then that yeah she she'll have to probably do the bath and stuff like that um but yeah sometimes she needs to work late so it all comes around so some give, yeah give and yeah. take what what about you andy um i <laughs> Yeah, over the years, we've we, you know we've always started off with respect for each other's jobs and flexibility of it. Cameron is um, driving up to Nottingham at eleven o'clock at night to pick me up because me and a colleague missed the last train, um, <laughs> which was ridiculously early as far as I was concerned. But um, you know, but she's done that. You know, there's no batting an eyelid on on the, you know how our relationship has worked out. I I work for. Um, a company that we I used to design a lot of um, pubs and this sort of thing, and um, she knew when we were in our last six weeks because my communication shut down. So even when we were having our first one or two of our children, um, 
the, the day was so full and the horse trading to get this because we were with the company that, that I, we were doing it for eight weeks out you had to say this was going to be the opening date no matter what so everything focused in on getting it done and she just knew that so she knew that you know the first hour after i got home just leave a clear space <laughs> to allow me to just get my brain back in a different phase and and you know and then and then you know as as time went by we got to a situation where with the kids at school our youngest having um special needs i then we made a decision that I would go on my own with our second child. Actually, I made we made a decision, um, and um, because her career was beginning to move in a direction now where um, it was necessary for her to be able to put that time in, and it wasn't it wasn't even a oh but what about me sort of situation. It was just a clearly sensible, you know. We we both work on a very you know, I feel I'm a bit more creative. We have a very logic brain thing about how life can and should be. And um, so for me, it was it was no decision at all. Work on my, get my work done. I can be in an area where I can see and look after the kids and help them where they need it. And she can then go and really concentrate. Because the difference is I can work anywhere. She can only work in a certain place. So it was it was much easier for me to sort of change my tact and... Well, we did actually, for, for anybody listening or watching, we did actually interview uh, Tamarin for the website uh, a couple of weeks ago. And that's the interview uh, that's just been published this week, which talks far uh, in far greater detail about the practicalities of day-to-day -day life. Because I know things like you do the school runs and Tamarin talks about the day she, she has a work-from-home day and things like that. So if you'd like a, a closer look into Andrew's... <laughs> domestic arrangements you can go read that interview but i think i think what the reason why this is important i think because we often talk about academic careers not you know not being standard that there's no one size fits all and i think exactly the same thing is clear from all of you that it's the same when it comes to uh home life that that you just make these things work for you whether you have kids don't have kids that um What's going on at home doesn't have to stand in the way of academia, it, uh, but there does need to be some flexibility. It's not going to be easy uh, to necessarily do for everybody because because not everybody has jobs where they can work from home or swap or or do these things. But um, finding ways that work for you is clearly the best. Well, uh, Joao, I'll give you a chance to answer that question. Yeah, um, I don't have that much to explain because, as you know, we don't have kids. Um, so it's much easier to kind of balance out things. But I think overall throughout our relationship, we've always been quite balanced in terms of delegating what each of us does at home. Um, but since I started working remotely about three, four years ago, obviously that balance tends to shift more on my side because, um, you know, I, I can pretty much wash the dishes and do the laundry pretty much any time because my, my work allows me to. So. Most of the time when Isabella is working on normal working hours, um, it's fine. It's usually pretty balanced. But during crunch time, I understand and sort of take on pretty much everything for a week or two if I need to, um, which I don't mind. I, it's not like, you know, it takes 100% of my time. Uh, again, no kids, so it's much easier to, like, do it. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely it definitely tends to lean a bit more on my side. It has happened before in the past where I have had crunch time. Thankfully, it 
it's not as frequent as Isabelle's, for example. But Isabel also kind of stepped steps in to do the same as I would do for her. So. Well, you've all described situations where that's worked both ways, so that that's brilliant. I, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Um, if you just can't get enough of this topic, visit the Dementia Researcher website where you'll find a full transcript biographies on our guests and blogs and much more of the topic. Um, you'll also find the podcast we published early this week, um, of which uh, Andy's wife, Tamron, is a, a guest on that show. and We've got interviews uh, with some researchers as well, talking about how they manage their uh, domestic family lives and, and research careers as well. Uh, but I have one final question for all of you before we go, which is what top tip would you have for someone who finds themselves um, with a partner or, or maybe a child or sibling who is an academic and they, they, they're new to this? Their, their partner's just starting a PhD right now or their, maybe their sister or their daughter uh, is just going into academia. What, what advice would you give to them? Michael, I'll go to you first. Oh man, I don't know if I'm, you know, eligible to really give good advice. But I, you know, I suppose the only thing I would say is, you know, whoever if whoever was was going into research or doing it, you know, if that's what they are passionate about and want to do, then you know, and you love them and you want to support them in the best way you can, like you got to just, you know, in the same way they probably do it for you too. You got to encourage them, be there for them, and yeah, give them the help them in any way you can to for them to be able to do it if that's what they really want to do yeah be a good sounding board like with anything you know you, people need to sort of yeah talk about these things so being able to listen I guess thank you Michael uh, Andy yeah I mean open the door for them and be there for them whenever they need to talk about anything you know that's I mean it's, it's pretty much communications with anybody in life but you know Research is and can be very rewarding. And if somebody really has the heart for it, you don't ever get anyway. Thank you. Joao? I kind of have a sort of a contrarian advice here to both of you, uh, which is more, um, I, I would say, because academia tends to be a bit predatory in terms of, you know, abusing people's time uh, and, and, you know, mental capacity. So as a partner, I'd like to see more people sort of come in and give their partners more perspective in their overall life to sort of give them the visibility of that their lives is not just research. Obviously, research is a big part of it, but there are other things that they need to sort of look into as well. Um, I know researchers, I, I, this has happened to me in my job as well, uh, tend to lose focus on the wider picture of life and just focus on work, 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 work. I like partners to be there to be like, hey, look, I know you're busy, but there's all this stuff around you that you should focus on for your own sake. You should focus on for a little bit. That's such good advice. Push back to kind of encourage that work-life balance. Can I, can I just add to that? Yeah. Um, Carmen and I have done that throughout our whole life. She has made me lift my head up from what I'm doing. And I've done the same for her. What, what, to your point is the fact that she has come to me quite a few times saying she's had to stop staff going in at weekends and working and that sort of thing. Cause she never did that. We, that was our rule, you know, it stopped on Friday and, um, and 
but she that is prevalent a lot of the younger people now that are trying to make their way they're being not forced but they're begin they're getting that mindset that they have to come in on a saturday to do more work or a sunday to do something when i consider that quite unfair on on their side when you first start you know so i think the overall takeaway here is encourage them support them it's brilliant work that they're doing there are going recognizing that there are going to be highs and lows but you can again be there for them to do that if you've got practical skills you can offer to proofread stuff, do things. Um, to, uh, also, as well, be prepared for the instability, that potential that, you know, there might not be a job in six months' time, but, you know, you've got to work through it and encouraging that well-being um, and work-life balance that researchers often um, lose sight of. Thank you so much. This has been brilliant. Um, I'd like to thank our incredible uh, guests uh, Andy Lashley, Michael O'Reilly and Joao Moriera. I'm Adam Smith and you've been listening to the Dementia Researcher Podcast. Thank you. Take care Thank guys. You. Good to meet you over here. Yeah, <laughs> Take care. Thanks. The Dementia Researcher Podcast was brought to you by University College London with generous funding from the UK National Institute for Health Research, Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Alzheimer's Association and Race Against Dementia. Please subscribe, leave us a review and register on our website for full access to all our great resources. Dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk